Hello, everyone. This is Luke Brenda here. And today I have with me Chance Garten, the host of Interverse Podcast, Vibrant, Marvelous Demystifiers. He also goes on the Weaving Spiders Welcome, uh, Weaving Spiders Webs now, I guess. And uh, he's just a really awesome guy with so much to share. I'm really happy to have him on here with me today. Uh, hey, how's it Luke, going, Chance? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on here. Uh, why don't you do a little introduction of yourself briefly, and then we'll take it from there. Sure, man. Yeah, there's a lot of things I could talk about, but if I was to encapsulate what my daily life is like, I definitely make a lot of podcasts, as you yeah. mentioned there. I've got three of my own shows going currently. Love coming on as a guest for other people's like this right here. So I'm really looking forward to see what we flow into. and. uh like to make a lot of art whenever I have time. And I also do tuning and Oracle cards. I call it, I guess Oracle cards is maybe a misnomer. It's more like I Ching and tarot focused with a, maybe some other things thrown in, but the tunings are a really big part of my life right now. I work with yeah three, probably three clients a week on average with that. And it's a amazing modality that people are familiar with me. I'm sure they've heard me talk about quite a lot, but it, even though I know that it's effective, it continuously blows my mind with some of the uh, results and experiences people have with that. So that's like using tuning forks to balance the energy field of um, of a client. And there's a whole methodology to that. But probably the biggest part of my life has got to be Interverse, which you can find at interversepodcast.com, weekly episodes, always learning a lot from my guests there and enjoying the life that it lets me live to be uh, following and pursuing these things that I'm so fascinated by and that make my <laughs> make me get all fired up and feel spiritually aligned in my in my life. It's really great. Yeah, you can find Chance on Rockfin and Patreon. Um, Rockfin's good too, but Patreon has so many episodes that go back many years, which for five dollars a month or whatever, it's pretty good deal, I would say. Yeah, even going back two or three years, Chance's episodes are like top quality. Even before his video days, his audio is really good. He's a great interviewer. He has a lot of great guests. So I suggest you check him out. Hey, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I think that a large portion of my audience really found me during the 2020 times. And moving to a video format was really helpful. But the, uh, quality of the content before that i agree that it was pretty good and some of that doesn't really have as many uh views or downloads or whatever and i would be stoked to see people go back into the archives and dig up some of the gems there yeah i go back every once in a while i think i caught like maybe it's probably about last year i caught an old episode with you and ross ben and it was excellent must have been in 2019 or something like that and yeah there's so much and the thing is the information is still relevant now it's not like it's dated by sort of topical stuff it's almost like this eternal knowledge that you have there so it's not like you'd be going back and wasting your time listening to a bunch of topical things they're uh really relevant even now to going back and listen to so i highly suggest you check it out very cool man that is definitely the intention is to create something that is going to be useful and fascinating at any point in the timeline you know really honing in on the now, but not in the topical 
news cycle sense, but in the the eternal, <laughs> what is actually the eternal present, right? Yeah, and you have uh, like some of the episodes you have like Emily Riddowd on where you talk about maybe the transits of astrology and stuff like that, which would maybe be like, I guess, dated a bit, but it's like you still get to learn about the Zodiac and you learn about that type of stuff through listening to it. So, and if you support Chance, he continues to make more awesome work, which, you know, and then he helps other people get their work out there. And it's kind of like this perpetual cycle of prosperity, I kind of feel like. Absolutely. One of my first and foremost goals when I started the show was I wanted to be able to like take somebody who had information and perspective and give it to more people than they were able to reach. And it took, you know, it took some work, had to put in the years of building a foundation and the skill set and connecting to making as many serendipitous connections as possible to the wider community and all of that. But now I'm happy to say that that does happen when somebody comes on, they might get like a little bump in their book sales or a few clients will come their way and new subscribers and all that. And I love it how in this field, you could call it, there's way more, it's way more cooperative than competitive that we are all helping each other. When we individually rise, it brings up the sea level for everybody. That's uh yes, the one thing, especially with chance is uh yeah, helping everyone out, getting that information out there. Like what you did with Dylan, for instance, is so amazing. I remember you mentioning Dylan way back, Dylan Sakoshio, before you had met him or anything like that, and you just kind of suggest him to a podcast, and then his work starts getting a little more popular, and then now he's writing another book, you know, like maybe that wouldn't have happened without you. And it's uh yeah, it's super cool. I kind of feel like these like as human beings in this realm, we're kind of like a prosperity generating organism, you know, in a way like we can constantly like perpetuate more and more prosperity for everyone. And one thing I forgot to mention was Chance has the best audience. There is no like infighting or bickering. It's all a lot of support. And someone has a different opinion, they'll voice their opinion, but it's not in like a weird argumentative way that you'll see on a lot of other shows. Actually, people like I've seen uh, even on like Beth Martin's show, like one of her your guests will be like arguing with someone in the chat. It's too funny. Whereas your your shows, like everyone is super supportive. It's really great. Thank you for saying that. I pretty much 100% agree. I say pretty much. There's no pretty much about it. I 100% agree. The audience is incredible and very, well, like just not trolly, but there's a particular strategy for that that I've employed, which is in the off occurrence, which is very rare that somebody does come in with a, a combative vibe or just like in some way the energy is off and I can tell. I just block generously and forget about it instantly. And to me like that, like we're to some people out there, especially content creators who are wanting to connect with more people that might seem counterintuitive, like, Oh, I want to be perceived and liked perceived as um, open and facilitating communication and not censoring or whatever. But (laughs) it's like, it's my house. And if, uh, if I want to keep them and maintain this type of energy in the space, then uh, you know, you got to look at what you're doing as, especially in this, like what you're doing as a podcast host, right? That you are providing the value and the audience is coming to benefit from the value that you're providing. And in the exception of like, if they're also your supporter, 
that then it's a completely one way transaction in terms of uh, who's providing who value. So if somebody comes into the space and is the opposite of valuable, uh, I'd have no, I have no hesitation to just like goodbye, you know, and there's a bazillion people out there to potentially connect to who are going to do exactly what we all want, which is a collaborative energy, a supportive energy, a curious and open-minded energy. And it's not about having, not being allowed to have a difference of opinion. It's just like, you know, don't be a, don't be a total jerk or even insinuate that you want to fight because I'll just boot you instantly. And I don't lose any sleep about it. It kind of reminds me of back in the day when I used Fedbook and uh, there would be somebody who would come on to my post and make some kind of argumentative comment. And then the rest of the day I'd be thinking about like, well, I should just type this to them. And like, it's just sticking in my head. <laughs> it's like fucking demons in there. And when, it, when you just block and forget about it, all of that energy, it's almost like there's some metaphysical, metaphysical quality to the block and the band feature online. You're like closing the door. You know, I'm not going to argue with this person. I'm not going to fight about this. I'm, no, no toxicity necessary. And it works out really great. It's sort of like, mm, not that I'm calling them human weeds or anything, but you're definitely pruning the garden. And I think that's the trap that a lot of creators fall into is they aren't uh, willing to set those type of boundaries with people or they look at it like, I need the audience. I need more people. I need this person who just showed up who I have no idea who they are. And they're kind of causing trouble, but maybe if I'm dip diplomatic enough, I can smooth it out. But, you know, maybe in some cases you could, but most of the time they're, they're not there to be diplomatic themselves. And so, yeah, you just do what you got to do and move on with your life and forget about it. And then you end up having quality over quantity, but the quantity will show up too, the more the quality is there. So that's sort of my strategy with that. Big part of the slow game, you got to hack that that tentacle off, right? That's what that blocking is online. It's like, they're like trying to get their tentacles into you and like start sucking you dry, like some mosquito. Yeah. It's basically energy vampirism, but on a cyber level and it's completely the case. And you know, it's the case if you sit, sit there like going throughout your day and the interaction is still in your head or you're still trying to figure out the best possible comeback or whatever <laughs> you're getting juiced right. at that point. Yeah. Wasting your energy on that. The whole thing is if you have something to argue about, like instead of arguing with a content creator, create your own thing, put it out there and then see what happens, right? Create your own argument, create your own video about why you disagree with someone and just put your information out there instead of trolling people and putting weird, uh, weird hexes on them or whatever. Most people that are doing the whole psychic vampirism thing of any form it's uh more of like a unconscious survival method that they feel like they're getting energy out of it and they may not even realize that that's what's leading them into that behavior but there are occasionally people that have figured out the whole energy vampirism thing as a strategy and do it on purpose and that's something i've spent a lot of time looking at researching and uh it's not <laughs> It's probably not talked about enough because clearly there are a lot of people that are still uh, willing to suffer 
the vampire to live, so to speak. <laughs> mm-hmm. What is that doctor whose book you always recommend on psychic vampirism? You did a you did a presentation on it one time. Because I would really like to get that book, actually. I just haven't gotten around to it. Oh, yeah. This is a fascinating book right here. It's called Psychic Vampires by Joel Slate. Joe H. Slate. I always say Joel, but it's Joe. I don't know why yeah. I throw the L in there. <laughs> yeah. And this guy did amazing research on the whole topic using stuff like curly and photography and just like basic questionnaires and would invite people into his sort of laboratory environment to talk to them about their experiences with uh, energy vampirism, or even he found self-proclaimed energy vampires to discuss their strategies with them. And if you look online about like for books about this subject, you'll probably find as many books telling you how to do it as there are books about like how to protect yourself from it. So it's definitely a thing. <laughs> it's wow, definitely that's crazy. Thing. How to be a psychic vampire. That's yeah. what they're selling. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's uh, popular in the in occult circles wow. that crazy, are bro. not really interested in morality and just interested in power and energy. Right. It's pretty wild, but yeah, I think that that's where the myth of the vampire mostly comes from is the energy vampirism. I really appreciate Eileen Day McCusick, her take on it. She's the um, tuning fork lady, wrote Electric Body, Electric Health, and Tuning the Human Biofield. I've learned a ton from her. And she puts it simply, oh, yeah, you got yourself a sonic slider right there. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, she says, be an electron donor, not an electron stealer. <laughs> because there's an actual... Back to this book by Slate, when he was doing the curly photography, which is like aura photography of people who had been recently psychically vampirized or themselves were doing it to others. It's really wild, but there are like tendrils of darkness in the aura that actually reach out and puncture the other person's aura. And you can see like a luminosity difference dramatically between someone who has been, hasn't been energy vampirized. And I'm not talking about it to like freak people out or scare them, but just let them know that whenever you, it's a basic tenet of life that you can follow. What gives you the feeling of more energy and clarity is good for you. And what makes you feel dull and confused or unclear is bad for you. And that definitely applies for interactions with other people. The problem is, after getting juiced, because you have a less clarity mentally, you're less likely to notice or be aware of why or how that happened and sort of a, can become like a vicious pattern or a vicious cycle. And the, uh, the healing and repair from hardcore energy vampirism, like in cases of domestic partnership with, that is a huge component that he talks about in this book is how people and their romantic partners will vampirize each other all the time. It's kind of like as simple as in those cases being always in a competition to win the point of like arguments and things like that. Uh, There's an energy transfer in that whole thing too. So it is much more helpful to cultivate an environment of communication where it's just about seeing and recognizing the other person's point without needing them to accept yours and be the winner, you know? 
keeping score in general in friendships or partnerships is uh, a road towards that exact outcome of winners and losers. And even the thing about the psychic vampires is that in this research by Slate, he demonstrates how the whole practice is actually wrecking the vampire's energy system as well. It is messing up their internal connection to life force and generating chi or prana because they're constantly looking for it in an external. So it's like atrophying their own natural connection to the source energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I noticed that that's another cool thing about the people you have and guests you have on and the group that you're involved with is that even when you have different opinions, you don't really argue. You're like, Oh, this is how I feel. This is how I feel cool. It's kind of like that middle path rather than this, like these extremes on either end, you know, and that's, Again, that's just like a healthier way of going about something, right? It is. It is. I I understand the criticism of the whole like yes and improvisation style of research and in particular exploring symbolism because it depends on, I don't know, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you want to know exactly what the ancients thought one thing or another symbolized or meant, there is a definite system there, but then over time, uh, these hyper sigils take on more and more connections to more and more concepts and things. And at the end of the day, like what is helpful is to do the three strikes idea in terms of if you think something is related to another thing or means another thing, then if you can find many examples of that, in particular from like art or architecture or writing from an older time, then you've probably found something that's a useful, legitimate connection. There's, you brought up Ross Ben. He likes to say all the time, consistency is the hallmark of truth. But just because in a, in a conversation, we may throw ideas around that end up not sticking with consistency. I don't look at that as a disservice to the audience. Um, there is a real issue in, I see this a lot. I'm getting more and more sensitive to it that people, myself included, people will hear information in a conversation like this and take it as gospel because like, oh, I heard it on a podcast. So it must be coming from an expert. They must know what they're talking about. But once you get up here and start doing this, <laughs> like we're doing right here, and you you meet the people who are the popular talking heads, you realize they're no different than the people listening, except that they made the decision to output and not just completely have input. So <laughs> don't believe everything you hear, even from me, because I might, I'm very well likely will change my mind about things later on. I'm more interested in opening doors for people in their minds to look into stuff for themselves and figure out what experientially gives them, again, something or things that or perspectives or mindsets or information that gives them a feeling of having more energy than they had before being more excited about life, more interested in what they can learn or do or achieve. Right. I definitely think your podcast is nailing that every time I listen to it, you're, I'm so fired up. I'm like this guest was great. I can't wait to check them out. Oh, this, that chance. One thing you're saying about like the psychic vampires is like staying so staying more sensitive rather than being desensitized. Right. And then you can sort of pick up on more of these subtle keys. 
But one thing I want to talk to you about is over synchronizing things. You know what I mean? Like you have this syncretism that you always talk about, you and Dylan, right? And sometimes you can like almost, it can be like too much syncretism where everything becomes the same, right? And so, whereas I had this project on archetypes, I didn't get it done yet. I was trying to do it last week. It would be, I could reference to it, but like there is the archetype, which is like, Plato's forms, like the Eidolas. And then how we see this archetype is through its archetypal image, which it projects. So an archetype is actually just like a symbol forming structure, and we can only see it through its manifest symbols. But then once you take these symbols and you scrutinize it with your consciousness, it becomes what Jung calls or uh, Levi Brule called representations collectives which would be like the cultural interpretation of the archetype given like a more specific form so it's kind of like you know you bring up seven sermons of the dead sometimes and it's like the polaroma is undifferentiated these archetypes are a little more differentiated but still not where we can like have a complete idea of what it is we only see it through its manifest forms and then that archetype becomes an archetypal image and then it becomes a fairy tale or a myth or something like that which actually has cultural significance so like to bring up this example it would be like odin like odin is a mercurial character but he is not thoth he's not Hermes, but he is still like a mercurial character like those guys. But it's like, you know, Odin rips out his eye to drink from the well of his uncle. Like, I don't remember when Thoth had one eye, but I'm not an expert on ancient Egypt either. So I was like, do you know what I'm trying to say here? I'm trying to like work within that sort of thing. There is syncretism, it's obvious. There's a lot of allegories for the sun and all this stuff, but then it eventually takes on its own specific meaning for the people that for thousands of years, that was a symbol for them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I will actually, my perspective is that Odin is Buddha, is Mercury, is Jesus, is Thoth. And that the mythology or the, the dressings of the story may change, but think it's exactly what you're saying. There's the undifferentiated, all the beingness, the one, and then, I mean, think about it, the one, right? Well, Odin is the, is odd, the odd one out, the alone one, Solus, which is the sun. And as the, uh, sto- as you get descended down from just the pure beingness of the one, the fat, like the angle that you're taking of looking at it, if you will, facets of the reflection of the source light are going to take on different parts of the story are going to change a bit as you come down to different cultures and different people and places. But I do think like (laughs) the odd in Odin is the same as the odd in God. And Mm. it's very easy to change an O to an A. Just think about, I mean, vowels are pretty much fully interchangeable when you're studying mythology and language from a philological perspective. Because just think about the difference between how somebody speaking English on one side of a country and speaking English on another side of a country might change the way their vowel sounds, right? Or all the go to New Zealand instead of here, they 
like we'll say Omega and they'll say Omega, right? So it's the same word. They spell it the same way. Even I think the same thing is going on with uh, odd and add add being a prefix that is close to like a, I think it's like Adapi or yeah. Adipati. That's a name for Adipati is a name for Buddha. Yeah. And it means first father or God, the father or the all father, all father, which is what Odin is called. I think the problem comes in where we're doing, when we're doing this syncretism, uh, people do like to just throw shit against the wall and think, well, this will this stick or whatever. I like and encourage the open-minded thinking, but what is most useful for me is to see, I think it's more useful to see the similarities in things than the differences, because there's always more sameness than difference. uh, Apparently it seems that way. And mm, a big part of the division in the world has been like, my culture is superior to your culture or whatever. And I am not ruling out the value in the uniqueness of different cultures, but to me, it doesn't, this doesn't uh, devalue the Odinist tradition to recognize it as also Buddhism. (laughs) And of course there's a lot of differences in the clothing between Buddhism and Odinism, but at the end of the day, we're still talking about the same idea, which is like the all father or the, uh, the father being the potter and potter is also the pattern. So a big part of where the issue comes in and it's exactly, it's most obvious to us in looking at modern Christianity and how Christianity has come along and where, where it came from that the exoteric interpretation of Christianity is to lead people to this externalized uh, savior Messiah worship. I call it the Messiah op, right? uh, (laughs) That your savior is out there external to you and that you need the uh, intermediating priest class or even the uh, mediator deity to get you to heaven or whatever. I mean, to me, the whole idea of be good and you'll go to heaven someday is exactly the same as the idea of eventually we'll have a communist utopia on earth. Just do what we say, <laughs> be good, and we'll get there. Uh, it's an unpopular opinion, but you've brought up Dylan a lot and pe- people ought to, if they're interested in what I'm talking about, def- definitely check out the Spirit World book series and that's Spirit World, W-H-I-R-L-E-D. I'm working on the fourth audiobook for that, narrating that, and I've done the third one as well. You could actually start with the third one if you wanted to, if you've already got a lot of astrotheology background. But if not, start with the first one, which is called The Definitions. And let's see, where was I going with this? Yeah, so people externalize the idea of the Messiah and miss the point of why all of these beings like uh, Christ or Odin or Osiris or I could name a bazillion of them are depicted as black, which I think has to do with that. This is the black sun or the hidden sun, meaning it's the internal light that is inside you and hidden kind of like 
So a big part of the syncretism of all the mythologies is the mythos of the seed. And that's where we get words like Kronos because the K-R-N is the corn and the corn is a seed. The seed goes underground and is hidden. And then the tree emerges from that, the world tree that the runes hang from or that Odin hangs from to receive the runes, what have you. Uh, That sounds a lot like logos, which is what they call the Christos. Christos is from Krishna. Krishna means black in Sanskrit. So I think that the uh, the esoteric meaning is about the seed of the or the divine spark within that you're meant to uh, connect with, and that that is the real salvation, or that's how you start to see the pattern or the Potter, the Father that is in all things. Is that you have to see the pattern within yourself to recognize it in the external. Uh, <laughs> kind of okay, maybe like bring me back around to something interesting that you're thinking now or wanting to ask about now because there's a lot of different directions I could go. And honestly, in just a two hour conversation off the top of my head, it is probably pretty difficult to convince anybody that the uh, all all the world religions and spiritual traditions come from a singular philosophy that is symbolized by the sun, although not meant to worship the sun as the God itself, but that again, the sun is a really good representation of the pattern or the fractal of it all. People get upset that they're like, Oh, well, my tradition's way better than this other tradition or not as corrupt as Christianity. But what is called Christianity is way, 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 way older than the name Christianity. It is Christian hermeticism is almost like, uh, yeah, yeah, Herm, hermeticism exactly. Hermes is the uh, same thing. It's the Her, Hermes is the logos or the Christos, and so is Thoth. And Thoth is the one who gave the Egyptians letters and writing, and Odin gave them the runes. And Jesus is the Word. And you can even find this in like South American, ancient Mexican, and uh, a lot of North American, Native American tribes as well. That the uh, you know, in the beginning was the word type idea. Yeah, here, can I expand on this just a bit? So what I'm thinking is that Christianity, I feel like, was set up from the start to be like an amalgamation of these religions. They kind of nicked from here and there because they were trying to make this one sort of world religion, I feel like. Whereas these other religions, they're based on source still, right? Like, it's all coming from astrotheology source the all and then it breaks up into the all father all mother but whereas like when they're naturally have differentiated themselves from the other groups it kind of came about in a natural long process i feel like and then that those differences are culturally significant to those groups more so than to like a a group in china or in uh, norway or wherever right but whereas i feel like christianity purposely put that stuff together to sort of muddy the waters in a way so does that make sense how the, the differences are culturally significant? But it doesn't mean that we can't see the still the sameness of it all. You know what I mean? Is that making sense? Yeah, yeah. The, they're going to be differences based on regions and dialects of language. Different but when stories you have of- so much, <laughs> I don't remember the exact statistic Dylan gave, but like at the point where a language has more than eight or 10 words in common, it's basically impossible that it doesn't come from a similar source, even if they have way more words different than the same. 
And what you're describing, uh, early Christianity, the early church was like a poor attempt to syncretize uh, various different regions and religions in a way that would be appealing maybe to the masses. How, how I see it is look at the new age movement. Okay. This is the perfect example of the same thing happening today. All of a sudden there was an explosion of access to knowledge with the internet and maybe like even before the internet with the just more mass communication that became available. And this new age movement arises where people sort of pick and choose from spiritual traditions wherever and be like, well, uh, my goddess is, my goddess is Freya or my, I'm going to work with the God Odin now or whatever. And they're just sort of like mix and match, picking different deities and concepts and uh, making a very literal belief in those beings. And a, a good example too, is also how the, the old kingdom of Egypt and then the new kingdom in the old kingdom of Egypt, the, there were many different Neturu who were gods, but they were meant to be out. They were understood as allegory, allegory of different aspects of nature and processes in nature. And then when the new kingdom arises, they, people start actually literalizing or a better word would be fetishism, fetishizing the Neturu believing them to be actual literal beings that had some power or control over their life. So you went from an internal understanding of these aspects of nature or Neturu to an externalization and thus a hierarchy that puts humanity below something that is technically fiction. <laughs> and I think that's a big, a big point to recognize all of this is like, it may be recognized in yourself, seeing the connection here between old kingdom, Egypt and new kingdom, Egypt, pre-Christian church, post-Christian church, pre-new age movement, post-new age movement. All of these are a similar thing where things become fetishized as in the, the best definition of fetishism would be when you take the symbols and uh, symbols and, and words and concepts and tools and rites from ancestors and uh, basically miss the point of them <laughs> and begin to worship sort of the image as the thing rather than the spirit of the thing or the, uh, the intent of the thing or the, the deeper meaning of whatever it is. And in the modern day, things have, ex have gone so far into fetishism that like fiction has become the master of most human beings on earth in a bunch of different ways. First of all, like, People are obsessed with fictional stories, and that's more important to them than what's going on in the real world. They can tell you all about whatever Netflix show they're into, and they have no idea how to grow a tomato or something, <laughs> you know, something that's real. You have the legal system that is entirely based on occultly, but not that hard to find out on legal fictions, which is corporations, corporate names. In legal speak, fiction or artificial is also synonymous with dead. So we have these corporate names and corporate governments, corps, you know, to do the, the green language on the word corporation, it would be corpse orator, a dead speaker of the dead or death speaker. And people hold up their government issued identity, all capital letters name, as if that external 
fictional name is really them when what we really are is a, a verb, not a noun. We're a continual process and a beingness, not a like people look at the word human being as being is uh, some kind of a noun. Like I am a being, but <laughs> being is a verb. It's got an ing at the end, right? So uh, there's a lot of directions we could go from there. But to me, it's uh, very important to recognize fiction is fiction. And the value of fiction is in allegory and how it reflects and teaches you about the natural world. And if fiction is a barrier between you and the natural world because of your belief in fictional things over the real, then that is where there's a big trap happening. Yes. So. Yeah, Jung has a way of talking about like fairy tales where it's it's like it's important because it keeps the arc, the shadow figure like alive in this story. So it's like you can work with these archetypes within these story frames that are important. So you did a good interview with Emily Moyer a couple of days ago and you talked about zeitgeist and all that stuff. So it's like I feel like the over fetishizing of something then makes it like, okay, now there's a, it's just all the same, the sameness. And so then it becomes meaningless. Right. And that's kind of like where I'm fighting against. It's like, it's all this. Sure. It all comes from the same source. So does everything, but there is like a particular meaning. It's like, I just don't want to lose the meaning of these stories, which I feel like, Oh, it's just the sun. So fuck it. We won't even look at it, you know, kind of thing like that. Whereas that's not what you're doing. I'm just trying to like differentiate between you know, the importance of the difference. And they all do come from like, you know, a lot of stuff comes from Egypt, Ireland, uh, the Phoenicians, you know, that's why Dylan's books are so great. I've just started cracking into them, but the conversations you guys have, the, the languages, yes, they're, they're all coming from like a similar source language, Celtic, or I don't know what Hebrew, Latin, they all have similar words that sort of stick together but yeah that's what i just don't want to lose the meaningless the meaning through the over syncretizing that was just my my point i wanted to bring up yeah i totally feel you there and i think a lot of people instinctively feel that way too and maybe that's why they push against syncretizing mythologies between different cultures but the real point isn't that uh, whenever we talk about all these different deities really being different masks that the one being is wearing. Like the sun goes through 12 stations of the Zodiac and becomes a different character in each sign. It doesn't take away other levels of meaning. All right. We're, we're doing what we're doing is we're adding or we're, we're digging to a more core or root meaning. And it's just like you said, there's the source, the one and then the archetypal layer that is like the first level of differentiation and separation of the source energy and things get more and more complex and minute as you separate further and further out and go further from the source energy. But most people, most people are on just like that outer ring of the knowledge and it doesn't take away the specificity of cultural insights from the outer ring to move further in towards the inner ring. We're not saying it's this and not that we're just saying, Hey, it's also this, <laughs> Hey, the, all these things are connected at the root uh, is the point. 
you know, Walter Russell has his own sort of cosmology. It's very similar to a lot of it, right? He's got the all, and he breaks down of like the all mother, the all father. You know, Shinto is very much like that, right? Shinto has like, yeah, it's like personifying like the weather and like all that type of stuff where it takes on its own sort of emanation, but it's not like a God. You know what I mean? It's not like, like, just like you were saying, like it's not in the statue. The God isn't in the statue or whatever that you're worshiping. I like that over fetishizing. That's a really good term. And the old kingdom and the new kingdom, that's when like the Hyksos came in and all that type of stuff was going on with the Atmos. And that was basically where like the fall of Egypt started, right? It was around that, that new kingdom period. Yeah, and the Atonists, how close is Atonist or Aton to Adon, right? Uh, like they called, they called God or Jehovah Adonai, but also there's in the Hellenistic tradition or the, you know, if you're speaking Greek back then, you wouldn't even aspirate the H in Hellenistic. It would be Hellenistic. Well, who's El? <laughs> we know about that too. They even called him El Shaddai. Uh, the same the same time they're calling him Adonai, the the one, the being. El means the also. <laughs> it's kind of just like the word theos or, you know, from theological referring to things, talking about God. Well, it starts with T-H-E, the, which is the same meaning as El. And uh, Adonai is very close to Adonis. Adonis is in the Hellenistic tradition, a sun solar deity. And Adonis, does Adonis sound, the Adon of Adonis sound that different than Odin? Is it really that different? <laughs> it's not. And Adonis is born from a mother named Mira, Mira or Mura, like the frankincense and myrrh that they brought to the nativity scene for Christ. Mara. Uh, Mira is not that far off or Mira is not that far off from Mary at all. And not that far off from Maya. Maya is the mother of Mercury or Hermes. Maya is also the name of the mother of Buddha. Exactly the same name. Uh, <laughs> go, go figure. <laughs> and Adonis is interesting story because when Adonis is born, from Mira, who is like impregnated in a sort of immaculate conception way. Her family gets upset that she was pregnant and shouldn't have been. And so they banish her and turn her into a myrrh tree. And mm. from the myrrh tree, a seed falls off of it, which becomes Adonis. So Adonis is born from a seed. Well, that connects you immediately to Kronos, who, by the way, Kronos was also called Adamu or Adam uh, Adonis like connects directly. Adonis yeah. and Cronus are also the same being. Uh, we talk a big part of the confusion here is in the fact that before a certain point, the planets, the wandering luminaries, planets, small plane, planet, they were not referred to by the names of the current god deities that they have now. Uh, they had totally different names and. In fact, all of the all of the beings that have a, a name as one of the wandering luminaries now, at one point, their name did represent a solar deity or the sun. And you have to go back further to find that or just study the language and see that that's what it's talking about. But 
it's very interesting that uh, Kronos, who's like the sun in winter, more often than not, the uh, the winter sun or the mm, <laughs> the high father of darkness or the dark time of the year, which is uh, the same as Abraham, Ab being father and Ham or Abram being father and Ham being darkness or blackness. Uh, Abraman, Abraham, mm. the high dark father, <laughs> the dark father. Yes. The Darth Vader. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because Vader is a uh, father in German. Yeah. So when they call Darth Vader, Darth Vader, they're calling him the dark father and Luke Skywalker is Luke is Lux, which is light. Well, what is the light that walks the sky? Is the sun. I mean, the, this mythology has been played out over and over again, especially through Hollywood. You know, for sure, when you study this stuff that whoever is behind Hollywood has this, knows this language and is speaking it to us all the time. And I think it's part of why stories resonate is that on a internal level, we feel how that story connects to the truth of the all or of what nature is doing. But maybe to like go back to finish the thread about Adonis that is interesting is he was um, the seed the corn, the KRN of Adonis was taken to the underworld by Aphrodite. Well, <laughs> Aphrodite, Hermaphrodite, Aphrodite was shown with a beard frequently. Aphrodite is also Hermes. They're just the same way as Zeus is said to be an eternal man, but also a maid swinging both ways, just like the sun in Leo is a male, but in Virgo is a female. So Aphrodite takes the seed Adonis to the underworld where he's raised by Persephone. To me that, and then he becomes the, the beautiful, um, attractive God, handsome young God Adonis when he rises up out of the underworld, which is the point of the spring equinox. Well, to me, that sounds very much like the mythology of Osiris who had Nephthys and Isis, the two females at his side were also called in some translations Murray and Murti, just like Mary and Martha that Jesus had. <laughs> uh, again, like we just see that there's way more symbolism that is the same than is different. Like another example would be Bacchus. Bacchus is like, there's tons of symbolism pertaining to how the like words for water and flow are syncretizable if you will or philologically linked and connected to words that pertain to the sun and life and bacchus is a perfect example of that bach being river or stream in german well bacchus is symbolized with the monogram that is where we get the whole ihs that the roman catholics were putting on things to represent jesus ihs is kind of like a corruption or a an alteration of the monogram of Bacchus, which was Upsilon Eta Sigma in the Greek characters, which would look um, interestingly if you were to go and pronounce the, <laughs> if you're going to go and pronounce the, the uh, Upsilon Eta Sigma that symbolized Bacchus, you would actually get something akin to hues. So when people are saying that they're like, a, that Christians are good men, uh, well, good is God or Gad, and the uh, Crestus in Greek meant good or benevolent or benign as well. So, in fact, like Christians comes from Christians, 
also there's a connection there. They're good. They're the good men or good fellas, which is what you call the mafia, <laughs> which also comes out of Italy. And uh, so we have, if you were a bondsman of the Christ or bondsman of Christ, you were Hughes man, because the Hughes is the Upsilon Eta Sigma or what became the IHS for Jesus. And there's other fascinating things about that too, like that the uh, the sun is divided, if you will, into different hues throughout the day and through, at different characters throughout the year the and seasons, even throughout yeah. the you know morning, afternoon, and evening, the way similar to the way that the Egyptian sun god was had one name at the beginning of the day and another day, name at noon and another name as it was falling. It was Horus Ra at the, in the morning time, which is Horus the Younger or Horopolo. Wait, that sounds like Horus Apollo. <laughs> mm-hmm. I apologize. Uh, yeah. Apologize. Yeah. There's a lot of apologetics for the uh, this cult of the sun from. So like, but other planets are personified too in stories, right? Like Ishtar and Tammuz is like the sun and Venus story. Same with like, you know, like Persephone goes into Hades and she, and then she has a baby Zagreus Zagreus becomes Bacchus. Right. So it's like, there is like other planetary stuff going on there as well, in your opinion or what, or is it all the sun? I think it's all the sun. Cause the sun is doing the uh, whole creator destroyer preserver role. Yeah. What about like from- the, uh, the morning star and evening star, you know, like the sun, the evening star heralds up and then the sun comes back up. There's that stories of like Ishtar and Tammuz, which is the sun and Venus. I, I am, I thought. Yeah. It, it all depends on like, I guess it's still what, the sun. <laughs> <laughs> what do we, well, again, the what what's important is that back then at an earlier point in history, Back, I say back then, but you know, if we wanted to, I could pull up some information of like maybe when the switches happened. But there was uh, no Venus was not a name for the planet that we call Venus now. Cool. Yes. Now that being said, um, yeah, the the again, there's multiple levels and layers of allegory going on in the stories, and the point isn't to say that each of these characters is only the sun or only the one, but that we can find the solar connection or the astro theology in all of the mythology that demonstrates that either a it came from a, the same tradition and the same language system originally, or B there's some actual inherent logos to the way that we communicate what we see in nature that somehow is innate within us and naturally arises from us and therefore creates a similarity between one system and another. But I find that unlikely because when we see the similarity in like rites and traditions and like weird rituals that cultures that seemingly have no contact with each other share, it makes you seemingly kind of shake your head and be like, who would just come up with that? <laughs> like it's said about, um, Sorcery and, and magical occult practices in like Peru, for example, that they share over half of their practices and beliefs in their magical systems with the European Western occult tradition. And the story that you're given is that, oh, well, when the Spaniards and the conquistadors came over, they influenced them a lot. And so they 
just took on a bunch of the occultism of Europe at that point. But what really happened when the Spaniards came over the the Catholic Empire under Queen Isabella, they actually wouldn't while they are conquering and destroying everything and looting all the gold, they wouldn't even allow anybody with an education to come over to the so-called new world. And I'm, I'm sure it's because if anybody that had any level of education came over, they'd be like, Oh, these people have a version of exactly what we have. And so our Holy church is clearly not really original and clearly not the only uh, we're not the only people that God spoke to or something like that. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't go well for the empire to destroy the foundation, their erroneous foundations of their own history and primacy. And like <laughs> the, uh, the Mexica people, interestingly enough, Mexica has Zaka in it. And Zaka is the name for Buddha. Um, Gautama Saka Muni. So here's one thing. Do you believe that people were more connected before, like traveling around the world? That's why there's Greek buildings all over the world, really, like in America and in Baalbek and in Greece. Or I think think so. I think that there's I think that there's reason to assume that for sure. Okay. so and then especially because so much of the um, similarities between the languages has to do with ideas of like mariners and sailors. Yeah. Actually Dylan's next book is going to be called the Holy sailors. I'm super looking forward to that. I love that last interview you did. That was so good. So good, dude. Irish origins. You're tying all this stuff together and breaking it down. It's super cool, man. I love that stuff. That was amazing interview. Yeah. Dylan brings it. (laughs) Yeah, You're doing you guys just together, man. You just, that was like the best interview I've seen him in. That was so good. Cool. So yeah. here, can I say something about Buddha? So have you sure. checked out the unslaved episodes with uh, Jason Giorgiani when he talks about Mithraism is Freemasonry, but then he also talks about Lao Tan, who is Lao Tzu, who wrote the Tao uh, Te Ching, got stopped with the Greeks going over, and then they changed his name to Gotan. Then it became Gotama Buddha, that Lao Tzu is actually Gotama Buddha. Oh, they got Buddha. the goat in there, too. That or? I haven't caught that. I, I've got to check it out. I'm behind on unslaved. I really it, should catch up. It's an old one. It's like a, maybe last year or two years I'm ago. Maybe like really behind, but I love Michael's work. I love okay. Unslaved. So just Georgiani really goes into this and talks about the etymology. Of yeah. I think I need to talk to Georgiani. You should, man. He's Giorgiani, fucking you see that Jason. Yeah. Jason Georgiani is cool. I've definitely heard him talk before about some of the Iranian stuff. Really yeah. amazing. But like, just to throw a point in about the Buddha that I missed. There's so many connections and I'm just yeah, no, I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. Yeah, sure. uh, talking about Adonis being born from a, a myrrh tree <laughs> um, or a Mira tree. Well, Mira, Mira, Mary, Maya, Maya, the mother of Buddha. Well, what is Buddha? Buddha, a bud? A bud comes off of a tree, right? <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. There's that. So, I mean, I feel like that the whole mythos of the seed is a good thing to study, to find connections between everything, everywhere, all at once, for sure. Cool, cool. So but uh, the, the whole Chinese connection in the Far East is needing a lot more research to de- demonstrate uh, similarities there. It does seem like the systems are more Eastern in their origin overall, which kind of makes sense because the sun rises in the East. I don't know. 
Yeah, check out the Georgiani episode. I can't remember which one. If I find it, he kind of mentions it partway through. It might be the Mithras one where he goes through the rites of Mithras and how they're basically the same as Freemasonry. But what I want to talk now, so Euharimism and Pesher, they're like two similar sort of ways where it's like they take a historical figure, then they add either a figure from ancient past and try and sort of like conflate the two also adding astro theology on top so like my example of this is like julius caesar and abraham lincoln like what's going on here did uh sir francis bacon make up caesar and then they just applied that story onto lincoln like what is what is your opinion on that because it's like they do this all throughout history and that's the most recent one i can kind of find where it's like they have these similar stories it's like what's going on here (sighs) never really thought about that before how the lincoln story mirrors the caesar story it's crazy but it does and you know (laughs) i haven't done a ton of looking into lincoln but there are some really big uh red flags <laughs> like that he was born in a log cabin or whatever. And uh, you look into the story of the, the Lincoln log cabin and right, right. find out that that was basically made up and that somebody built a log cabin and started taking it around to like carnivals and County fairs and be like, they take it apart and rebuild it and be like, this is the exact cabin that Lincoln was born in. Right. And anyway, like all this marketing kind of reminds me of the world's fairs injection of a particular view of history and you just have to wonder i don't know um lincoln is not that far back in our history but that doesn't preclude it from being made up because look at what happens today there i I haven't really explored it that much but it seems like this just happened with the uh, actress Anne haish where Mm. she was doing something speaking out against something maybe like human trafficking or something is what I heard. And then they're like, Oh, she uh, went crazy and drove her car into somebody's house. And (laughs) (laughs) you watch the people on spiders were showing this video of her being taken out in a body bag, but then she like rips out of the body bag and you see her try to get out and they like shove her back in. And then she dies in a coma at the hospital. So to me, like, you know, that could have been a remote controlled car, a Michael Hastings style, and then medically murder somebody and say it was from something else. And then, you know, now we have go go for enough down the line and not that she's a very important character, but now there's going to be a story of how she died and why she died that might be completely different from what really happened. And this is in the age where people can record things in HD and everyone's got that in their hand. Right. They can still pull off an op like that. So going to the time of Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> what we actually get is true, but as the true historical gospel about that could be totally off. And the further back in time you go, the more likely that's the case. So I tend to agree with Dylan that uh, anything in terms of writing can be forged and faked. And most of the history of the church is definitely that a lot of uh, big figures, bishops and, and writers in the clergy themselves have admitted that their forefathers and precursors were just rife forgers. So 
yeah, I don't really trust anything about history. <laughs> right. Uh, and I can't tell that because I can't separate what is history from what is astrotheology and mythology applied onto someone, which is what a euharimism is. You know, like, especially in the names of people. Um, I'm thinking for right now, I'm thinking about Alexander the Great. <laughs> Al is L. <laughs> X is 10, and X is a symbol for the sun. Um, you know, Alex, Ander, anyway, and is like on is another word for the sun. There's, ah, all of that seems very suspect. He's even supposedly like a descendant of Hercules, who is another solar character. So the uh, work Dylan has done on Crow triple seven episodes about the Roman history and that the uh, 12 Roman emperors could just be zodiacal symbolism to me that Totally fits. I think it, what we're looking at is pro- very probably, very likely a much more recent power takeover by the Vatican, like way more recent than we believe. And at the point of maybe some big genocides and big book burnings, you can just insert whatever history you want to the illiterate masses, and it won't take very many generations before. People forget that there was even a big change in an insertion or they'd ever knew to begin with because they're just normal folk living their lives and the uh, controller class is playing a longer game. So I, I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. Don't know. Yeah, because Ralph Ellis goes into it a bit. He calls it like Pesher in the Bible where like they conflate two characters together. So you don't really know what's happening. But uh, yeah, who knows? It's kind of like the same thing. Yeah, that. Uh, you and like I think it goes back to almost like John D, just like what you and Juan on from the one on one podcast talk about. It goes back to like John D and Francis Bacon, and then they set up this new world, and then they can rewrite the whole story from there. You know, like after a few traumas later, we don't really remember what's going on. Everyone's grandparents and great grandparents have been whacked out, and then yeah, I think it kind of goes back to like that sixteen right around. Uh, the renaissance era right in the enlightenment era i feel like that's when there was like some switch happening but we can't even go back that far really right so that makes the most valuable things to research real world artifacts real world masonry uh that is still around or old artwork is very useful for that to try to get a a line on what the at least the symbolism is talking about and language language <laughs> language can't lie <laughs> at least when you see similarities between languages and um yeah to me that is a really helpful like one another one that's coming to mind just to connect the the odinism to the hellenistic world very clearly and obviously would be he- hella in odinism is the goddess of the underworld right and hera is a goddess in the Hellenistic tradition. Well, <laughs> Hellenistic, <laughs> there's that, right. but yeah. <laughs> uh, the underworld being Tartarus. So there's your Tartaria as well. But yeah, the RL switch, there's a couple of very common switches but that from language to language that are really, really worth playing with as often as you can. And a big one is the L to R or R to L. Any any words of or names of mythological characters, if you just 
start playing with that switch, you'll start seeing things that jump out at you all over the place, like Hela Tahera. Or, I don't know, man, not, nothing's popping into my head right now, but there's a bazillion examples. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a big subject. I'm just trying to pick your brain here while I got you here on this few things. So thank you for that. I apologize to people watching who don't know what the hell we're talking about, but <laughs> look at get into it. Yeah, Ralph does a really good job with like the whole biblical stuff and bringing it into actual history. Like it's like, again, they did the same thing with Jesus where it's like there was this Jesus of Gamala whose whole royal family wore thorned crowns. And they lived like over in Babylon somewhere. And, you know, so it's like they've kind of conflated that with this new savior they've created. But, you know, he's digging up these coins. He's finding these zodiacs out in the woods or out in the desert, I guess. And I don't know. Ralph's pretty cool, too, doing that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I haven't looked into Ralph's work enough to know to be able to speak on it. And so I'm not disparaging his work at all or saying that his theory is uh, wrong or incorrect. but. In terms of the the coinage, the coinage has always very commonly, anyway, depicted the solar deity uh, in some form or another. And the crown of thorns is like the rays of the sun, and it's a similar symbolic motif to the horn, the ram's horns, which Alexander was shown wearing. The ram's horns are, um, they go back to Amon in the Egyptian tradition. Uh, Ra Amon or Amon Ra, mm. which they say at the end of their Christian prayers. Amen. <laughs> well, I just uh, did a thing on the movie Dune and Mithraism. Basically, Dune is Freemasonry in space, if anyone didn't know. Oh, uh, for sure it is. But, like, yeah, they have uh, Mithras, and he's got those rays coming out of his helmet. It looks just like the Statue of Liberty. It's hilarious, right? Like, yep, just- Statue of Liberty, S O L. There's your soul. Soul Invictus. Nice. Nice one. Yeah, cool. So uh, maybe switch gears here. I would like to talk a little bit about your sound healing and your your oracle work that you do for people, because that is super cool as well. I'm really into that. Yeah. So mm, do you want me to just kind of like overview that or do you have any specific questions Um, you want to start with? Maybe just give a bit of an overview of like what, what it is. Like I say sound healing, but kind of more like frequency vibrational tune-up work with aura fields and all that stuff right yeah it's like uh aura i'm like an aura technician over here (laughs) uh and it's something that i think anybody could actually learn so i taught myself this method of tuning sound healing is not a bad phrase for it but it also invokes all kinds of ideas like laying in a yoga studio while somebody's playing crystal bowls around you or gongs or binaural beats or all kinds of things might fit into the category of sound healing and tuning as I do it is a form of using sound for healing but it's more like you're bringing balance to the person's energy field and attention to uh, stagnant issues of flow or beliefs that are stagnating about themselves and You know, I've talked about this at length and in some presentations gone for as long as three hours just talking about the process. (laughs) So there's a lot to it. But in a nutshell, and I learned this from, again, Eileen Damikusik. Let me show off her book here. Uh, 
I got so many books over here that are worth pe- people's time, but uh, Tuning the Human Biofield, Eileen Damey Cusick. I read this book and was able to teach myself the method that we're talking about right now just from that, or you can learn. I say just from that. There was a lot of experimentation. I even once received a tuning from somebody who was certified by her coursework, and I learned a few things from that experience, but ultimately, it isn't complicated. <laughs> when we apply coherent sound in the energy field of our body, which is about a six foot bubble space off of all directions, it allows the body to self tune and self correct anything that is a dissonant vibration that the body's putting off. That sounds very woo, but it's also completely scientific and consistent. Uh, her other book, Electric Body, Electric Health, this is a, a really good read. If you just want to know more about, how your body's electrical aspects function and tons of science. Like she does not shy away from actual credentialed scientific research on the topic. It's not all woo. She's sort of very Libra and bridging the spirit and the science together. Also, while I was grabbing books, I just want to show people spirit world books, get these books. If you want to catch up on, bro. there you go. The definitions book one, book one is really good intro to astrotheology but it gets so much better as he continues writing yeah cool. uh, book four is just off the off the chain how good i'm it really is. looking forward to that book but I, they've been sitting on my shelf for a while i just bought them to support dylan and i was like i better start cracking into these books now that he's writing new ones you get so far behind right you want to yeah but they're men they're page turners dude yeah i recommend people read the physical book and the audiobook because seeing the phonetics is one thing, but then hearing it pronounced is another thing and put a lot of effort into pronouncing things correctly. Right. Well, and it really <laughs> grinds it into your mind books. too. You read it, then you can listen to it. And Dylan had a good uh, idea of actually even having the Kindle book so you can be searching through it nice and easy, right? And then having all of those. Yeah, because he knows I do that. Yeah, <laughs> Practically yeah. every podcast I'm on, yeah. I've got a Spirit World book open or another book that I can cross-reference certain words and ideas because there's so much information um, to remember all the connections, it takes practice. And uh, sometimes there's just going to be more than what you can remember off the top of your head. But yeah, let me continue on the tuning thing. So can I ask you a quick question? Oh, sure. This first is like, so both books by Eileen is what you would recommend or just start with the first one. And then if you're just kind of interested in uh informational sense, then I would get the newer one, Electric Body, Electric Health. And if you really want to dive into the practice and do it yourself, the first book has actually got a little bit more information on the method in a functional way. Cool. Yeah. I have both those books too. It's just like, I got to get around to reading them. Yeah. And the audiobooks of those are great. She narrates them herself and she's a great narrator. So that's fun. Uh, yeah. So in a nutshell, that method is like, the biofield anatomy is what really is innovative about what Eileen came up with. And the biofield anatomy is the theory that certain energy, energy in the form of feelings and memories, and thus equated to sort of like traumatic experiences actually can, what we'll do is we'll compartmentalize and wall it off from our conscious self because we don't want to feel it. There's actually in my in my understanding of how the psyche works, kind of similar to how the Egyptians had multiple layers of the body, I work with a multi-layered psyche myself. And one of the layers of the psyche is actually a protective layer 
that's whole job is to hold back feelings and memories from you and awareness from you of things that it thinks that you will be interrupted from what it is that you have said you wanted to do or need to do or survival things in your daily life. So, you know, it's like, yeah, we don't have time to cry over this shit right now. We need to like go to work today. (laughs) So, um, this energy can be held away from ourself in Basically, uh, you got to understand that memory is not in the brain. It is the flow of energy in our field that constitutes memory. And so the more cohesive and coherent and unblocked your flow is, the more you remember about everything from childhood memories to why you incarnated on the realm to begin with and what your purpose is, all of that, who you truly are. So with the uh, biofield anatomy, she's provided like a chart, if you will. Uh, that tells you what types of feelings and what type of experiences are in what parts of the energy field around the body if they were to get stuck. So if you were to find stuck energy in a certain place, you would actually be able to reference this biofield anatomy and know a general sense of what that is. And it's not exact, exact. There's some intuition. And maybe if you know more about the person you're working on, you might have even better intuition for me. (laughs) <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to possibly unpack about this, but how the method works and it's so consistent is I'm going to sweep from one end of your energy field towards your middle, towards your column, central column or spine, the, the main chakra vortexes. And if I find stock energy, then I am sort of clicking and dragging it back to the middle so that it can return to circulation for the rest of the body. So we're working on this um, three axes of uh, top to bottom, left to right, and forward and backwards to determine what stuck energy might feel like. And I'll just give, let me just give like a recent example of how this might play out. So I had a client this um, this week who had, I noticed that one side of his energy field was like dramatically longer than the other side like about eight, six to eight inches on the right was longer and it was shortened on the left side. So it was as if, you know, in the middle of the toroidal field donut vortex shape that your energy field is, it was as if his body was misaligned and like off to the side and it wasn't in the middle of his own field. Like he was leaning to the right. And when I told, explained this, that I was finding that these boundaries were stretched out. He was, uh, he was like, wow, well, one of my legs is longer than the other one, according to my chiropractor. <laughs> so we got in further to like some early life experiences that informed some of the beliefs he had about himself that he wasn't maybe aware were beliefs that were causing him to lean more on the right side, the right side being the masculine side and sort of weakening, thus weakening the, uh, the receptive side of himself or the feminine yin side. And it was amazing that three days after his tuning with me, he went to his chiropractor who told him that his legs were nearly the same length now. So the reason why the legs were different lengths was because one hip was out of alignment, like pretty badly. And it was the right hip. Again, being the masculine side, the right hip has to do with like pushing yourself too hard and overdoing it consistently if you have hip problems. And people do kind of work themselves to death like slaves in our society. A lot of the time, and they'll thus get right hip replacements before they're that old in Western culture. 
Or if you're like really lazy <laughs> and really averse to doing any work at all, you might get left hip issues. Mm-hmm. So there's information encoded in the entire biofield across every one of these up, down, left, right, forward, backwards axes. And uh, with the forks, so different people maybe have different ways of finding the stuck energy. But for me, it's really obvious. <laughs> like I, my body communicates it to me really, really easily. And I do this remotely. So this also proves that everything in existence is mental and conceptual, including distance and separation. I do it all remotely and it is still fully effective and in some ways more effective remotely. But so I'll hit the tuning fork and I'll sweep it and say, I'm looking for the outer edge of the field. When I hit the spot where the outer edge is, my ears pop every time guaranteed hundred percent consistent. Whatever I'm, whenever I hit a spot that I'm looking for, my ears pop. Now, sometimes they'll, there'll be an accompanying, accompanying thought or intuition about what something means or a feeling that goes with it. And that gives it more context. But at the very least, I'm just looking for the places where I hit a spot with a fork where it makes my, my ears and head pop with like this electrical crackly feeling. And that's just me. That's not really described in her books in terms of the method. Right. I think different people have different uh, aptitudes in terms of their ability to communicate with their body, which is what psychic abilities are, is communicating with your body because your body is connected to the all and is comprised of the all the universe inside you, so to speak. So your body knows everything already that there is to be known. It is a matter of like, can we come up with a system of communication to talk to the body, to find out what it knows. And I believe that that is what is so useful about the tuning protocol is that it is a language with the biofield anatomy in particular, and the methodology of using the forks, it becomes like a communication system to tap into the innate intelligence of the body for yourself and for the other, whoever you're working with or working on. Okay, so you're saying that with the tuning, you can actually heal physical wounds. Is that, is that correct? Uh, in terms of like you get a gash on your yeah, arm okay. and you hold the fork over it. I don't, I can't say that it's going to like Wolverine heal right in front of your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> now, physical wounds um immediate physical trauma like a a gash and hole in your arm that is actually a hole in your energy field your body is a layer of your energy field i have experience of working having wounds of my own that were worked on with forks like open like i scraped up my my leg one time and my girl held the forks right over it and we could hear a pitch change from being away from the wound and holding it over the wound. Right. So I do think that there's probably a high probability of accelerating uh, the healing process and definitely know that it is good for alleviating pain and inflammation. Like I've had clients specifically tell me many times that they were having painful inflammation in various parts of their body. And then after a session, the inflammation went down really dramatically. So uh, it's it's subtle. So the forks and the sound aren't healing you themselves. They are showing your body what coherence uh, sounds like, and your body is right. self tuning and adjusting itself. So the body is the body builds itself in a literal sense, but also in the posture that it holds, like tension that it holds or releases. All of that is based on the energy field as a blueprint. And the energy field is 
primarily based on the structure of your thoughts and beliefs and awareness. So there's like, it's like layers of an onion going back to that mm-hmm. idea of the, the source and then archetypes and then further differentiation from there all the way down to the, the minute and the details and what you consider like the cellular. It's the same thing. And the, um, I think the sounds are very much like showing the body something very close to the pure undifferentiated source energy. Like, you know, the five to eight fork might be one of those archetypes, primary archetypes, right? Adjacent to source energy in the form of sound, the way that right. the seven colors would be. So say, for example, the guy with the hip issue, it's like, because of all that stuck energy, you start working with that and then it's actually freeing up and allowing it to heal more than it's actually like actually healing it. Right. Is that the theory behind it kind of? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, body does sense. the healing. I've got to get but, one of these tune ups, man. I'm, I swear. Yeah, do it, man. I, I love it. that. It's always really fun to talk to somebody who has a show who has actually received the tuning too, because then they can share their experiences. But um Kind of like think about how one of the ways that it can help is similar to deep tissue work in a massage. So whenever we're holding tension in a certain area of our body, it requires energy to hold that posture of tension. Mm -hmm. And when it becomes unconscious, we don't even realize we're doing it. It's just our natural posture or has become our natural posture, but it's an unnatural tension. It is also actually holding up a certain quantity of mental energy. Kind of like when you have too many things running on your computer in the background at once that you're not even using or you forgot were open. Holding a certain posture of tension is mental energy that is stuck on the program of hold this posture. And this is maybe a defensive posture or a a subordinate posture or who knows. There could be all kinds of reasons. So that mental energy is also on one level a belief that requires that posture because the belief says so (laughs) and they're usually very unconscious. So like a client I had also this week as an example, uh, didn't realize it, but there was a lot of stuck energy in like the right knee and right ankle region. And particularly that pertains to like um, obstacles, both self-created and external, depending on if you're talking knee or ankle. And uh, challenges, overcoming obstacles of different sorts, like moving forward. The right foot is the one you put forward first. It's kind of the future-oriented side. And after we did the tuning, uh, his right knee and right ankle, he reported back, were very, very sore. And it might not sound like what you want. Like, oh, I don't want to be in pain after I get a healing. But it wasn't because of the tuning. It was because of the release of the tension. Just like if you get a massage and they work on some muscles and you release some big knots, the area where that was is going to be sore. Because think about how you're sore after you work a certain muscle group in the gym really heavily. While holding tension in one spot 24-7 and never letting it go, that is like exercising those muscles. And when you let it go, it finally has a chance to heal and relax and restore itself back to balance and it's going to feel sore because it just did a lot of work and healing. Sometimes pain is actually an indicator of healing 
And ultimately pain is a request from your body to pay attention to a certain part of itself. The pain is a signal of communication. And instead of rejecting and pushing pain aside and pushing it down and trying to avoid pain, like culture kind of teaches or mask or numb out pain, you really want to put your attention right into the pain. And that's going to reduce the immediacy of the need for the signal in the first place because where attention is directed, energy flows and energy is what brings healing power <laughs> to that spot. Yeah, it's very similar to like Qigong and that type of stuff. Yeah. And then like having, like say you were injured in a car accident or something that was traumatic, you know, there's going to be emotions tied into that actual physical wound too, which is going to like keep that tension there as well. Yeah. That's super cool. Cause I've like hurt my shoulder. And then because I'm leaning one way, I've hurt my hip a bit and I hurt my groin doing something else. And it's like, all that imbalance just creates more and more imbalance, right? And yeah, this tuning fork thing seems a real good way to get rid of that. Yes, yeah, so is it the right shoulder? Yeah. I was in a yeah, car accident, so, my arm ripped right around. Ooh. So the right brutal. shoulder, one of the things that that can mean is um, kind of saying yes to things that you really ought to say no to carrying other people's burdens for them, doing the work for other people that is really theirs to do. It's a boundaries issue in a lot of ways. And think of it like a lot of the understanding of the biofield is interesting because the, we, we speak that way in metaphor all the time. Like I'm shouldering some, I'm shouldering your burden for you right. or whatever. Well, the right shoulder does that. And the left shoulder is more like a more emotional burdens and pains and can hold on to other or absorb other people's sort of uh grief or sadness or pain more on the left shoulder, left armpit side, but the right side is more like you're physically doing some shit for somebody else that is. And then the hip is like overdoing yourself, overdoing it physically. So you can easily mm -hmm. run into if you're doing work that's not really yours to do, or you don't feel like you should be saying yes to that ultimately, or it's not what is best and right for you. You can get the right shoulder and the right hip can kind of get out of whack. Yeah, it's gotten so much better over the last like five or six years from like doing that. Also like working it out. I used to only be able to lift it like so high, but you know, you hurt one shoulder and then your other shoulder is not as strong because you're not doing that stuff like that. Right. And then it just, that's what got me on. into the forks was shoulder stuff. I hurt, I hurt my shoulder doing rock climbing, but the injury pertained to everything that I just described about the right shoulder <laughs> and right. the left shoulder. See, that's so interesting. But the hey, experience came to in. me in the world in the form of rock climbing that hmm. brought my attention to it. And uh, it's important to know about injury and disease that all of all injury and all disease is uh, originates in a spiritual component, originates in a belief and an emotion and how all those things tie together. Like, when you stub your toe, you didn't just stub your toe and that's just a random accident. Pay attention to which toe you stubbed. And do you know what meridian that connects to? Do you know what kinesiology points, reflexology points that toe connects to? It might be telling you something about your inner emotional state that you're not aware of or paying attention to. And so the uh, external experience of the ouchie is like a, a, you know, universe waving a flag at you like, hey, look at me. Hey, look at this. And so it's like, yeah, so like I injured my shoulder, took so long to heal, whereas other people could have the same injury and heal way faster because there's not all of that psychological and energetic stuff tied into it as well, right? Could be, yeah. Um, if they are 
willing to get to the core issue that led them to the shoulder injury, whether or not they realize that it's related to the shoulder injury would help it heal faster. Um, odd, interesting too, is like when I applied, I got into sound because of shoulder injury myself and it was from climbing and the heel, it wasn't healing. And I was ha- taking a lot of time off of climbing and then trying to get back into it, but they, I still couldn't raise my arm high enough. And I got one of those weighted tuning forks that Eileen sells that you showed the sonic slider. I started using it on myself and within, within days, the pain and the injury in the shoulder was healed, but this isn't to like scare people off from healing, but (laughs) after I got the injury rectified using the sonic slider and healing that, what ended up happening, it wasn't right away, but it started my, my life started changing and situations in my life started changing and shifting that within by the end of the year, uh, what it was that I was out of alignment with in my life and in my relationship, well, it started to see its way out the door. (laughs) So interesting thing about working with sound is that I feel like we have the whole trinity of mind, body, spirit, so that if we get stuck in one area, we can work on the other area and it will help in the area that we are stuck. So for me, I was stuck in attachment to a relationship that was holding me back and hurting me in a lot of ways. And I wasn't seeing it. I was not allowing myself to see it, but it was actually the origin and, or at least the external reflection of where the shoulder injury was coming from or what the shoulder injury was trying to show me. And so whenever I applied sound and healed the injury on the physical side with the, with the shoulder, well, the uh, external situation in the form of the relationship started to see itself out the door, like I said, and then that was hard. And that required me to face all of the various issues I was not facing that were leading me into the attachment to begin with. And so, you know, just be aware that when you start the, when you start getting serious about healing in a holistic and coherent way with something like sound that Oh, you froze up a bit, buddy. No worries. Hopefully you zap back in. Yeah, another question I have actually is just like, what for? You don't get to just pick and choose what you heal. Like you're going to, if you want, oh, you're kind of frozen there. There we go. Sorry, I was talking while you were frozen, but yeah, continue. Sorry. Oh, I'm just saying, yeah, like you're going (laughs) to, if you really get serious about healing, you're going to have to accept that uh, the changes are not going to just be biological, that you're going to also have to bear witness to the changes in your lifestyle and in your relationships and whatever that are the reflection of whatever was dissonant in your body or your health that you're working on. And if you're willing to do that, you were willing to allow that, then healing can occur. But disease will continue if we stay attached to that which is hurting us on any of those levels of mind, body, spirit. And, and, (laughs) and like getting into that level of healing and coherence also after starting to begin my journey with working with sound also is when on the spiritual side, all the various like hexes and erroneous beliefs that I was holding about 
things mystical related also began to dissolve and melt away. I mean, I never really made this connection, but that was about the time that I started to find the work of people like Dylan and start to learn the code and apply it myself so that couldn't be fooled anymore <laughs> or not as easily. And uh, that's a continuing journey because there's so much to untangle, but mm-hmm. yeah, it applies on you heal in one level and it's going to apply on all the levels. So, you know, be ready for that. But yeah, it's uh, it's very worth it. So how long ago was this? If you don't mind me asking this whole change of your partnership and all that type of stuff. Not all that long ago. Uh, the, the healing process that I'm talking about, I believe came began at the end of 2019. It's when I started physically healing the shoulder injury and then 2020 hit. And uh, in 2020 is when also the relationship stuff that I was talking about began to untangle itself to the point of full separation and independence. Right. I feel like I saw like a physical change of you, like from that point, like, I feel like you've changed quite a bit, just like even in the way you look in a way. Yeah. Okay, cool. (laughs) You gotta watch out, man. Uh, And I'm still, well, it's a continual process because this is not to blame the other person, but whenever you're involved in uh, something that is like energetically draining you, uh, your systems do need time to repair themselves and get back to healthy expression. Like Tessarion says it all the time that bad, bad psychic vampirism in a chronic experience can take potentially years to fix yourself, if you will. And the beautiful thing though, about the process of, what they call healing, healing. That sounds like something else I know. Heli- helios, heal, heal? Mm. helios. <laughs> Where's your heel? Your heels on the sole of your foot. Soul is what? Soul helios. What? <laughs> yeah, the, we're, the sun. We're talking about the sun, but <laughs> we're back here again. Oh no, <laughs> everything is everything. But yeah, the beautiful thing about the healing journey and the healing process is because we are vessels that are uh containers just a, a metaphorical word because of the the energy the source energy the zero point field what people call ether although ether have a, some i'm realizing i have a lot of issues with the way it's described and the way that term is applied uh but regardless because we are universal energy and an fractalized miniature of the all that means that there's actually never an end to what we can heal within ourselves, and even when we've got ourselves in a really amazing balance of uh, coherence on all metrics there's always more that we can do for our heart because we're at that point really influencing especially if we've gotten really clear in our body vessel we're really healing and influencing the all we're detoxing the universe <laughs> the more that we do it for ourselves so don't look at it as discouraging that there's always a next thing and always a next level and always more work to do on yourself look at it like the more work you do on yourself the better the world around you is going to get the healthier the world around you is going to get your own direct environment is going to get so that old saying i think it's krishnamurti i was when i i wanted to change the world 
but really I needed to change myself. It, it really does work that way. At least your personal world will definitely alter. Yes, I agree. And that's where like, you know, everyone's out trying to change everyone else, trying to change this, like just change yourself. And that's just going to like change the effects of those around you. And then they're going to maybe start using that as an example or even feeling that energy and they're going to start to change too. Uh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Like, uh, so if you could choose two forks, what frequencies would those be? Cause I've been trying to like, I have the sonic slider, but I want more of like a sound vibration tuning thing. Your two favorite forks go other than your giant depends. One. Okay. It, my answer depends. I'm going to give, okay. if I was going to give somebody just one fork to pick, uh, I would say something like a 174 or even maybe a 144, although I haven't really worked with 144 as much. A 174, I'll play it. Ooh, pretty low on the frequency low, range. Yeah. I find, okay, so in terms of like biofield tuning and wanting to be able to hear pitch changes and differences in the fork, if you were attempting this work on yourself or somebody else, the 174 is really good. And if I wanted to, I could do a whole session with just this fork. I like to use different forks and, and intentionally attach each of the frequencies to representing a different area of the body. I like to do that. It's sort of like a craft thing for me. <laughs> I feel like it's sort of um, similar to magical correspondence systems that the more matches that you can create in your ceremony to whatever your intention is, the stronger it gets because you're actually taking an action to represent the thought and the intention. So that being said, I'm all about using like the full range of solfeggio in a session, but technically all the body is asking for is coherent sound and coherent sound is sound that has a balanced wavelength of up and down on the sine wave and one seven four and the lower range frequencies like this below 200 uh, are they're really easy to get a good strike on because the tines are long and they ring out for a really long time because they're a bit larger. There's that too. And you can, because it's easier to get them sort of going louder and longer it's easier to hear pitch changes and frequency shifts in them. And I like it for that reason. So like, that's a practical answer. I'm pretty sure Eileen would probably agree with what I just said. Now, if you were going to get two forks that really sound good together, I love the 417 and the 528. Those in particular, they are still pretty good for what I was just saying. Uh, in the range of Solfeggio, the only one that I don't find very easy to work with is the 285 for whatever reason. Or is it 258? Yeah, it's 285, right? Yeah. <laughs> I use it so rarely <laughs> that I was forgetting what it is. But I, I use 417 for sacral and 528 for solar. But again, you could use any frequency for any area of the body. Once you make the intention of like, now I'm working on the throat chakra. The decision is part of what makes whatever happen because this process is so close to the purely mental plane or whatever, maybe it's logos or whatever. But the, uh, the biofield tuning store has a really good five, two, eight and four, one, seven fork. They sound awesome. 
if you anyone wants to pick those up. Weighted tuning forks are the way to go if you want to work on your own body, on your own self, or on an injury, like the sonic slider that Eileen sells that Lucas got here. But I'll play the uh, four one seven and the five two eight together because I really like how they sound together. there's like a whole nother conversation we could have about selfeggio. What, what is selfeggio? What makes selfeggio selfeggio? Why am I interested in those frequencies? Particularly there's a whole like a uh, mathematical rabbit hole, <laughs> mathematical rabbit hole to get into with those. Yeah. Cool. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, I also want to talk about the whole dark night of the soul and all that type of stuff with people too. But I think this has been a pretty good first interview to go into who and what is chance all about. So yeah, this has uh, been awesome. Yeah. This Had a lot fun. of fun. Time's um, really flown by. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on here. This has been great. Do you want to just leave your stuff before I'll put all the links into description and stuff like that, but you can find it on innerversepodcast.com. Is that what that is accurate? Those? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My YouTube is pretty popping in terms of uh, if you show up while I'm premiering a video or doing a live, you'll have a lot of fun people to talk to. My Telegram chat is, like Luke said, it's like the best community ever. <laughs> people are so okay. cool there. Tons of geniuses who you can, I liken it to having a search engine that instead of being the Google AI censorship algorithm machine, you're asking human beings a question and they're answering based on their own experience and knowledge. I love that. So our Telegram chat, if you want to connect to the larger community, get in there. If you like what I do, you'll love the people that congregate around it. Um, yeah, interversepodcast.com links to everything I do. My Rockfin channel, if you want to get the premium content, is great. Or my Patreon, it's great. And the only thing that I even ask for money for is the second hour of Interverse interviews. And everything else is free, including like two to three hour long live streams every Wednesday. And whenever we get the chance to do Marvel demystifier shows where we de-occult Marvel movies and TV shows, those are also free and those are huge. <laughs> That's a whole other side of the, the work is uh, deciphering the fictions to what I like about reverse engineering. The social engineering is that if the inverters of truth are inverting truth, then all you got to do is reinvert it yeah. <laughs> and you can find truth in even the, uh, the spells and sorcery. Well, you see how much the, the runes are co-opted too, right? All the symbols, like you get the, yeah, you get all that stuff and you just look at what the person who's wearing it means by it. And you take the opposite and you can literally look in a book and it'll be like, Oh, it'll give you the description of it. And you're like, yeah, that's exact opposite of what these people are using it for. They do. It's like opposite day. Yeah, <laughs> Everything opposite they day. taught you in school, just pretend you were playing opposite day and you'll go far. I remember when I had that realization, when I started like waking up to conspiracy, so-called, I was like, oh, we're just playing opposite day. So um, when I got to the point where I started looking at the contradictions in the um, cosmology of the realm and was like, well, can I for myself find a curvature? If I look for a curvature on the planet, 
<laughs> it wasn't that at that point I was like, you know, this is a big one, but everything else has been opposite days. So maybe this is also opposite day. And then I couldn't find a curvature whenever I went to a high place and looked for a far off landmark and could see it way too far away. I was like, okay, we're done here. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye ball. Sextants. So, what's up with that? Anyway, what's that? that Sextants. What, what's up with that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't that require trigonometry? That's Don't trigonometry other, uh, doesn't trigonometry require require triangles? Don't triangles have flat sides? Game over. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that tangent aside, um, people can connect with me at my email if they want to schedule a session. I didn't even talk about cards, but I do right. read I Ching and Tarot for people. Uh, I do spreads that are going to help you see what particular superpowers or uh, levels of consciousness you're currently working on or unlocking, and then give you some information from different parts of yourself, like in message from your body, message from your heart, message from your mind, message from your higher self, the state of you on the yin and the yang side. Like we'll cover all these bases and uh, give you context for how to unlock that key of destiny to unlock whatever it is you're moving towards and currently moving into. So very, very helpful sessions uh, with the cards to resonate with your own internal knowing about who you are and why you chose to come here. And those pair very nicely with a tuning session to do that after tuning. So cool. That's a good move. People can email me and, or look at my website for more information about any of the things that I do. Awesome. I was wondering if you paired those up together, like either before or after, like my friend Martin, who's a longtime astrologer, he does dream analysis and he'll do the chart. And then he'll do dream analysis after. And basically the dream analysis is the same as the chart reading. Like it's the same stuff that's happening. It's so cool. I love mixing. That definitely happens when you pair up the tuning with uh, cards. Cool. You got <laughs> cards to sell tell like a combo, like a combo package tuning and. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you sweet. save a little bit of money if you schedule them together. Dope. That's awesome. Uh, sometime I would love to come back and you to come back and talk about that stuff, but this guy is so busy chance. He has so many shows on it <laughs> might be a while before he's got that time, but I'd love to talk about Oracle and all that. No, we'll just we'll put it on the calendar for sometime. Okay. Maybe a couple months out just to give a little space to breathe and for some new and fresh things to come to mind and be happy to come back, man. I love this. And I would be, if you don't mind, would love to mirror this to my own channels after it's been out a little while on yours. So more people can see it. Yeah, for sure. That'd be great. Uh, I'll put it up probably later today and I'll shoot you, shoot you in an email. Sweet, I, don't, man. I don't really do any editing or anything on just these one stream videos, but I think like, you know, it's kind of just like one and done. Yeah, no we editing. nailed it. Perfect flow state. Nothing to edit. I think it was great. It's been basically right on two hours. So I hope everyone enjoys this and I hope people go check out your work and support the people on there that you're supporting. And it's kind of like, it's this perpetual thing like what you did with dylan uh, he is really humble and appreciative of what you did but you know like he brings it up every time he's like you just really helped that guy out man getting his stuff out there and now you're helping us out because he that was actually my intention when i came across his work i said to myself whatever i can do to get this to more people that is my goal and i was able to talk to jason from crow triple seven about dylan's work and they had him on and the rest continued because I remember he was threatening to not share his work anymore. If he didn't get, <laughs> if he didn't sell enough books and I kind of misunderstood what he meant by that. He was just going to stop 
doing the online promoting of his work and just whatever. But yeah, I was like, no way we need this guy. (laughs) And yeah, it's cool because now I get to call him a friend. And uh, whenever I notice crazy syncretism, like that, (laughs) Jesus is, uh, so Jesus's father, Joseph, Joseph's grandfather or Joseph's father was Healy. I found that in the new Testament Healy. What does that sound like? Healy Helios. Okay. So Jesus is the grandson of Healy. Got it. Yeah. I no connection though. No, yeah, no connection. No connection. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, check out chance interverse podcast.com interverse YouTube Rockpin. uh, support this guy because without supporting him we wouldn't have all this cool stuff that he's got too so get out there support the artists you like because otherwise they won't be there yeah man well i think i would still find a way to do it but it's really great to have the support uh to be able to do this full-time and not have to do other types of jobs is awesome i was really glad when i was able to make that transition so stoked for you, dude. I, I knew you could do it when I first saw you on Unslaved. Is actually, I was like, I went out, I listened to like half of one of your podcasts. I was like, I got to support this guy because this guy's going to do something. I could just tell. And here you are living it up. Yeah. Michael and David really helped me out a bunch, finding new audience and giving me a platform where I felt like those shows were some of the first times where I brought forward my own research on things. And I wasn't just playing host and asking questions. And I was like, man. I could do more of this. And so, yeah, I'm eternally grateful to, to Sarion and David Whitehead. Really, really grateful to call those dudes friends. It's awesome. Uh, stoked. I'm glad you're here. I hope you come back. I hope everyone enjoyed this, uh, this conversation today. I think it was, we kind of went all over the place like you do, but uh, I think it was valuable for people. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. This was really good. Cool. I enjoyed uh, checking out your next episodes as well. Coming up soon. Uh, See you, everybody. Hope you have a good day. Thanks, Chance.